If you come back, and uh, we're going to turn to Job chapter 27. Job chapter 27. And sort of like I mentioned last week, you wonder why the Lord chose to just have them keep going back and forth on you. Um, they just keep going back and forth, don't you? These controversy between Job and these three friends. There's a one cycle, a second cycle, and now they're into their third cycle of arguing back and forth, or not arguing, but uh, well, I guess arguing, presenting their arguments back and forth. And now Bildad has one of his three friends has presented something to Job, and Job is coming back and making a response. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 27. Of course, there's more going on in Job than everybody knows, right? You know this. Because... Job wasn't, and his friends weren't privy to the first two chapters and what happened. And God and Satan had a discussion about Job. And Job wasn't a righteous man, or is a righteous man, we find out. And in fact, he's one that has integrity, wouldn't you say? He's one who has integrity. In fact, he's going to talk about his integrity, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but he's going to talk about his integrity tonight. But let's think about what integrity is before we begin. This is interesting, man. This convicted me. Integrity is something that's integral, something that's um, a oneness, a, a sameness. In other words, when you have integrity... You're the same everywhere you go. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And you're the same in every circumstance. Now think about that. How are you at work? Or how am I at work? Versus how am I here behind this thing? Or how are you when the circumstances, the worldly circumstances, are terrible? And when the worldly circumstances are great, how are we? It's a oneness. It's a one-mindedness. It's a single-mindedness. It's not an unstable, double-minded person. You ever had a group of friends that you were with before you were Christians? And, you know, you have given your life to the Lord and, you know, you whatever, you go out to eat with them or something, and it's so easy. Is it not so easy to fall into the same, like, language you used to have and actions and attitudes that you used to have? Am I the only one where you just fall right back into it? The heart is so deceptively wicked. Who could know it? You're saying, what? How did that come out of my mouth? Or why did I do that? Or etc. Or how about this one? 
Are you the same at home than you are out in public? That's integrity. Am I the same at home? Uh, that's integrity. And so Job's about ready to talk about it. <laughs> God has called him a man of integrity or a man that was blameless, that walked with him uh, way back in the first couple chapters. And now these men have been bringing these points to him. They've been saying, you must be a sinner because you are suffering. That was their theology. And it was a nice little package, prepackaged little thing that they could give out and hand out for all the different circumstances. And we've said, isn't it true that when people are in uh, suffering and we're ministering them, we don't want to just connect intellectually and just give them something intellectually. We want to connect with their heart and minister to them in that way, right? We want to listen. We want to be very good at listening and slow to speak. But boy, after the first week of these friends staying with Job on the ash heap, they weren't very swift to hear. They were quick to talk. And now they've been just pummeling him time after time with the same old argument. And so we're going to tackle it again. Chapter 27. And then I have the perfect segue at the end. Compliments of my wife. So I'll give it to you. If I forget that, you remind me, okay? Compliments of my wife. Okay, here we go. Chapter 27, verse 1. It says this, Moreover, Job continued his discourse. He had been talking about man's frailty and God's majesty in chapter 26. After Bildad had said, yeah, well, God's so powerful and God's so just, you'll be found out. Job talks about man's frailty and God's majesty. And now he says this. Now he says this. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my justice? And the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. As long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I would say, you are right. Now remember, he's speaking to his friends. You're not right. Remember, what do they want him to do? They want him to just say, there's some hidden sin that you must not be disclosing. And that's exactly what Satan told God that he could get him to do. In other words, if Job can lose his integrity just for a minute and actually lie about this hidden sin and say, okay, I have some hidden sins, so let's get back to normal. It would be proof that Job was following God for the gifts that God gives and not for the beauty of his holiness, just God alone. You get it? So he's speaking to his friends that I should say, you are right, no, nor my tongue utter deceit, for be it from me that I would say you're right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much, if God takes away his life, will God hear his cry? When trouble comes upon him, will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? 
I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? This is the portion of the a wicked man with God. Well, let's stop there at 12. Well, let's think about what, what is happening here. This is Job's last defense of himself. This is the last time he's going to make a defense, and then we're going to stop at chapter 31. But if you're a little fuzzy on what happens at the end of Job, I think you're going to be surprised the way in which God responds to Job. But this is his last defense. And he takes an oath in chapter verses 1 through 6 of 27. He says, I'm going to stand firm until the end. I'm going to stand firm until the end. Right? And uh, uh, he has to live according to his conscience so he won't give in to these pressuring friends. That's what's happening here. Ever had that happen to you? And now he says things like, may my enemy be like the wicked, etc., all the way there down through verse 12. And what's really fascinating about this, and I won't take the time to compare it, but I'll just tell you, you could go back and compare it. He uses the words that his friends were using against him, and he repeats it back to them as if to say, hold on here. The people who are going to be judged and are wicked, it's not me. It's you. And that's what he says here as he uses their words like, my enemy be like the wicked and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. And a hypocrite. These are tough things, right? Will God hear his cry in verse 9 we read? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? Here Job is defending himself. He's confirming his integrity. And you see, he says, I'm going to teach them about the real power of God or about the hand of God. And you see that. And then he goes on and he says, if you falsely accuse me, this is what he's going to say in 13 through the rest of the chapter. If you falsely accuse me, friends, you're the one that'll be punished. And here it comes. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the, inher the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. The rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes, and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away. The east wind carries him away, and he's gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately. He flees desperately uh, from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. Now, do you know what an imprecatory psalm is? An imprecatory psalm is when David and others, you could look in Psalm 55, 69, 137, 
It's sort of confusing. We actually had the question at one of the men's retreat or men's uh, fellowship mornings on Saturday. They're judgment psalms. They're a prayer to call judgment upon your enemies. And really, chapter 27 is sort of like an imprecatory psalm. I mean, if you read 13 through 23 here, uh, what he's saying is if you continue to be judgmental and hard and uh, rigid and uh, you won't budge on these things without the necessary evidence that I'm doing something wrong, you're going to share, he says to his friends, the end of the wicked. It's like an imprecatory psalm. But don't get confused about that because you probably are thinking to yourself, well, what about the Sermon on the Mount? (laughs) Isn't Job a godly man? Isn't he a blameless man? Listen to what Warren Wearsby says about this. Job's words sound cruel to us, especially in light of what we are taught about forgiving our enemies by both Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and Paul in Romans 12. But Job lived, remember this, even before the Mosaic law was given. And we must not expect him to manifest the kind of spirit that was seen in Jesus and or Stephen. Of course not, right? This is a time uh, that's before those times. And so uh, we see uh, Job here sort of giving an imprecatory prayer. You, You know this, right? There are several instances in the Bible where judgment was planned by an enemy but was brought down on its head or his head. What's the most famous one? Somebody yell it out. Come on. Haman. Haman and Esther, we just got done studying in chapter 7, chapter 9. Haman built a gallows, and he was going to hang uh, Mordecai, but Haman was the one who was actually hanged. Actually, he was impaled, but oh well, we won't quibble with that. So so you see that happens uh, in the Bible there. And here, uh, Job is maintaining his integrity and calling down judgment upon his friends, or at least saying if they don't change. Now watch this. Pretty interesting. Job has a discourse now. He keeps talking. This is like a continual poetic prayer. Write that down. (laughs) This is like five or six chapters of just poetic pouring out his heart to God prayer. And I'm talking poetic. What's poetic? It's not just the things that he's saying, but it's the feelings that he's feeling with God. And he just pours out his heart here for five or six chapters. That's important, I think. Some of us among us say, well, it's just the same stuff. But let's examine it. Surely, verse 1, there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess. He's talking here about mining, of course, going down in the ground, in the darkness and the shadow of death. And that is scary and like death-like. You're going into the ground, right? He breaks open a shaft away uh, from people. Men and women will go to great lengths to find minerals. I mean, right? Coke. We're used to Coke. We see it up and down the rivers all the time and all the different things. They'll do anything to get this stuff. They'll design barges. They'll design, 
you know, drills, cranes, mine shafts, mining operations. Listen, he breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. Uh, they hang far away from men. They swing to and fro as for the earth from it, uh, from it comes bread. But underneath, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphire, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. That's just the young people or the mature people. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out the channels in the rocks, and his eyes see every precious thing. He dams up the streams for trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth to light. And here's the key verse, 12. He, what he's saying there is everybody mines for jewels and precious stones. But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? You know this, right? That in the Bible, minerals or jewels or gems are a picture of finding wisdom. When you find it, you find wisdom. And here, Job, in a poetic way, tells us what lengths men, people, will go to to find those jewels, but... That's not the goal of life, even if you find sapphires or rubies or diamonds. But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Check this out, verse 13. Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living, nor is it found in the land of the living. What do we know about wisdom? Check out Proverbs real quick, real close here. Chapter 3, verse 15. You, you know that. The lady is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire uh, cannot compare with her. And you, you know that in chapter 1... Verse 7, I'm just trying to show you some places about how, um, how um, precious these rubies are, and then a wife is more precious than rubies, a, a person uh, who you find, uh, a friend or a, a wife or a husband, people are are, are precious, and, and rubies are precious. But then in Psalm, or Proverbs 1.7, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We know that. And then we know in uh, Psalm 110, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Did you hear that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? This becomes critical to Job. He, he understands that there's a difference between knowledge and facts and wisdom. Are you catching that? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about wisdom and knowledge. Now, now really tune in here. Not that you weren't, but just 
Check this out. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a fool or as a fool as the knowing fool. Did you get that? No greater fool as the knowing fool, but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. It's that thing that we're called to be and to do in the Bible. You know, each one of you and us, we together are called to be right dividers of the word. I'm convinced that's tied into wisdom. There's millions of people in the United States, I think, that know a lot about the Bible itself. They have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. And you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, you know, what do I do? Should I go to, you know, this college or that college? Where is it in the Bible? And when you don't find it right here in the Bible, people get stuck. I mean, should I wear a dress or a skirt? Should I, <laughs> you know, should, should I uh, 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 take this occupation or that occupation? It's not in there. It's, you're not going to find it in here. <laughs> And I think that's on purpose, because the Lord wants you to dig with him. Get real close to him and dig, and he'll give you the answers. Uh, should I? Well, anyway, I'll stop doing that. But where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its value, nor is it found in the uh, living. It's not found among the living. You can't get wisdom. Listen, listen, you can't get wisdom by going to school. That's what the Bible says. Should I, do I think you shouldn't go to school? No, that's not what I'm saying. But you don't get real wisdom by going to school. You don't get, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. You don't get real wisdom by reading the Bible only. Uh-oh, I'm going to hear it now. But here's why. There must be a fear of the Lord. That's where you start with wisdom. And so when you hear that, as I read these things to you, Proverbs 1 and Psalm 1, is it 10 or 11, whatever I said, I must know what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord has been called a living reverence for God. Just like any good dad. Some of you here didn't have a good dad, maybe. Maybe some of you did. But our Heavenly Father is a good dad. And now, because of the blood of Christ, we can come to him and listen to this. It's a holy reverence we have for him. We, we are his kids. He is our Abba. We can crawl right up on his lap and say Abba. But you don't, you know, you know flick food at your father or make fun of him. or You, you know what I'm saying? You, you're not cavalier about this. You're, you have this fear of the Lord, this loving reverence. And his love isn't a recoiling fear. Because when we hear, uh-oh, wait a minute, I'm to fear the Lord? It's not a recoiling fear, the one that paralyzes you when you're scared. It's a fear that motivates you. It's a fear that props you up. It's a, it's a love relationship of respect and awe. And if you go through the Scriptures, look at this. If you have a fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, you will, listen, you, your, your trajectory of your life will be to obey his commands. Or your 
trajectory of your life will be one that lives in his promises. Are you getting it? Like, for instance, I'll just give you this one. Man, we're going to get married. I just asked her. All right. That's tremendous. So where are you guys living? Oh, well, we live together. Well, you've been coming to the church, and you say you're born again. You're living together? Yeah, we're living together. Come on, man. We're going to get married in two months. What's the big deal? And you say, well, wait a minute. That's not honoring to the Lord. You should move out and honor the Lord here for the last couple and do that. That'd be a great thing. Ah, you know, the Lord doesn't really care. See, what you've done now is you've disobeyed the Lord. You're not living in the fear of the Lord. I'm not living in the fear of the Lord. And I'm not picking on that uh, relationship. You could be a gossiper. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. The Bible tells me not to be a gossip, and yet you're at the pool, you know, spreading all these rumors about your guy, you know, the, the, your buddies. What, what else? It says to walk in his ways, the Bible says, is the fear of the Lord. To serve him and to be loyal to him. Uh, here's a big one, though. Here's a big one. You ready for this? To live in the fear of the Lord in Second Chronicles, or excuse me, Proverbs 3, 7 and 8, is to depart from evil. Now you go, okay, well, yeah, sure. You know, I'm not going to go put on pornography or anything. Oh, okay. Well, what about the Netflix subscription you have? And you know, come on, you, you know what you're watching. It might not be pornography, but it's pornography. But, you know, it's your Netflix subscription. You're not willing to depart from evil. Because, you know, there's just some things that we can't do. The Bible says we're not to cozy up to the world. And what many in the church are saying is become like the world, when the Bible, in fact, says, no, 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 be different from the world and live according to my commandments. And I don't know what it might be. There might be something evil in your life that you're just laughing at because everybody else laughs at it. The Bible says, just get rid of it. That's living in uh, reverence for the Lord. Like, like if my dad, my, you know, my dad said, you know, man, I really need you to do this or not do that. I wouldn't just look at my dad and say, heck with you. Who are you to tell me when I was growing up with him? No, when I'm living in the fear of my dad, I go, well, dad, I'm going to do what you want. Right? And the funny part about this is, he knows exactly what's best for you and me. And so that's living in the fear of the Lord. Where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? You can't know its value in this life. You need spiritual weapons in order to live in the fear of the Lord, which means you need the Holy Spirit, you need the Word of God, and you need the Holy Spirit to help you surrender your will to obey. That's living in the fear of the Lord. And that's real wisdom. When, when people do that, you get to the answers. You have that friend that keeps coming to you and her, her situation just seems impossible. And you, you scour the Bible for the answer, but the answer isn't exactly in there. And the, but, but you keep going through the Word, and the Lord gives you the solution to help her or, or just you yourself, you know. 
See, that's real wisdom. Or, you know, there's a... a, 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 I don't know. There's this relationship at work uh, where, you know, you're the, the boss and, you know, you're a man and you have to keep taking out this gal for work and you know, at first you're like, well, that's, we're just doing, and then you start to say, well, wait a second, I'm married. <laughs> I'm going to take somebody along with me. Wisdom. It's not just knowing the facts. Anybody can know the facts, but we need a supernatural move of God to have wisdom. And it begins with fearing the Lord. It's how you and I are relating to the Lord because he's our dad. That's where we are. The deep says, listen to this, it's not in me, verse 14. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot, you can't find it in the seas. It can't be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It can't be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of uh, fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. You can't buy this wisdom. You can't just... By the way, God can take your schooling wisdom and use it for your glory. But if you're just focused on the knowledge and the facts, that's not wisdom according to the Bible. It's more elusive than any treasure, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. And then here comes the question again. Well, from where then does wisdom come? You see this guy who just wants to know what's going on in his life. I've listened to my friends. I don't want to listen to them because I know you're good, Lord, but they keep harping on it. Where can I find this wisdom? Not just knowledge, wisdom. And where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we've heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way and he knows its place. Do you get that? Wisdom only comes from God. We've looked high and low, but wisdom only comes from God. For he looks to the end of the earth and he sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind. This is really fascinating, by the way, as a side note. He's talking about the wind and the barometric pressure here before all of this was known. And apportion the waters by measure. He's talking about the amount of water in the atmosphere. That's fascinating. And when he made a law for the rain, he Controls the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. He guides the storms. Then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed. He searched it out. And to man, he said, listen, here it comes. Here it is. Behold, the fear of the Lord. Here's the answer. It's come to him. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. We'll never... Listen, listen. What are you go- just think about what you're going through right now? What is it that you're going through? Don't say it out, of course, or, but, but what is it that you're going through? You're never going to understand it or possess the answers to any of life's riddles absent the fear of the Lord in your life. In other words, the closeness 
Are you sitting under the shadow of the Lord's wings? Not that you're perfect and you do, but are you there? Do you desire closeness with the Lord? See, that's where the fear of the Lord is. What did Job do that made him receptive to the wisdom of the Lord? It's fascinating. He departed from evil. He humbled himself and he said, you know what? We had this friend at Calvary Chapel, Honolulu. I'm not suggesting you do this. We had these friends. We'd go out for pancakes with them after uh, um, Sunday morning service. And, I mean, they were radically saved, man. (laughs) They were radical. And, I don't know, second or third time in going to pancakes with them. They said, yeah, you know, we've been really zipping through the Bible. I said, really? Well, how'd you zip through the Bible? They said, oh, well, we we threw away our TV. I said, oh, wow, threw away your TV. Okay. (laughs) Well, Really, that's kept you up and you've been zipping through the Bible? You live in Hawaii, you've been out? And you say, oh, yeah, yeah. We also got rid of and this guy was a record collector. All of our classic rock, in the toilet. Well, not the toilet, but you know what I mean. And I'm not suggesting you give away that stuff, but for him and his wife, the Lord convicted them, and it was evil because it kept them from them. Do you see it? And they, they were willing, they were willing to depart from anything that was keeping them from him to honor him because they wanted to be that beginning of wisdom, that fear of the Lord. And whatever it was that God was calling them to do, they seemingly were willing to do it. Some of us just want to pray the prayer on the magazine and live our life just like it's always been. And the Bible never calls us to that. Here, the fear of the Lord is... The beginning of wisdom. Oh, my goodness. So chapter 29 is funny because it says, well, Job further continued his discourse. (laughs) It's like, man, can you be quiet? (laughs) But he just keeps going on. He's got lots to talk about with the Lord. Here he's going to recall past blessings from where he used to be. Past blessings. Watch this. It's like he's saying, you know, Man, the good old days. The good old days. Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head. He was guiding me everywhere. By his light, I walked through darkness. Lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. It was so easy when I could see. Just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, God's presence was most and important and precious to him. He was over his tent when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream. What does that mean? And the rocks poured out rivers of oil for me. What does that mean? Well, that speaks of the richness of life, rich life that was dynamic and powerful and things were going great and everything was humming and the ducks were in a row. And I was, you know, I would come home singing the gospel and I would go home, you know, get up singing the gospel. And I felt like playing a harp and it was just amazing. The young men, or excuse me, when I went out to the to the gate by the city, verse 7, when I took my seat in the open square, young men saw me and hid. Uh, and the aged arose and stood. I was respected, and people listened to me. And the princes, verse 9, refrained from talking and put their hands on their mouth. I was a leader. 
And the voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw it, then it approved me. Because I delivered the poor who uh, cried out. The fatherless and the one who had no helper, the blessing of a perishing man came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Man, I did some great stuff. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. Sounds like Isaiah 61, by the way. That's what Jesus, the Messiah's ministry was. But I searched out the case that I didn't know. I was really smart. I found things out. I broke the fangs of the wicked. I came down on the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. I helped the oppressed. Then, verse 18, I said, I shall die in my nest. In other words, God's going to continue blessing me, man. This is the life. Just being the presence of the Lord, always sensing the presence of the Lord, always things coming out right. And he's going to multiply my days as the sand. Why shouldn't God continue to bless me? Isn't that sort of what he's saying? Anybody ever say that? I'm the pastor. I'm doing, I'm giving, I'm here, I'm there. Oh, man, Lord, you're indebted to me. That's what we think in our theology. My root, verse 19, is spread out to the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. Uh, I even influenced others. Listen to this, 21, Job says. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. And after my words, they didn't speak again. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as uh, for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they didn't believe it. And the light of my countenance they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. Job longed for a return to the way things were, didn't he? And then there's these words in verse 30. Listen to this. But now they mock at me. Here he moves from the glory days or the good old days to this really suffering present where he's now treated poorly. And before we start out this, I want to read you this quote by a German Reformed uh, writer. His name was Gerhard Tierstegen. He said this. This is really powerful. As long as we want to be, I'm, I'm going to say it twice, as long as we want to be different from what God wants us to be at the time, we are only tormenting ourselves for no purpose or to no purpose. I'll read it again. As long as we want to be different from what God wants us to be at the time, we are only tormenting ourselves to no purpose. Think about that. Here, there are these purposes that God has planned out for Job. He's not privy to them, but he's per, uh, planned them out. And he says, now I'm a person that everybody mocks, even men younger than I, verse 1, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. They were driven out from among men. They shouted at them as at a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valleys and caves of the earth and the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. And now, look at this, 
These were, the, these were the vile people, the base people, the people who were just profane. You ever been around somebody that's just profane? You ever been to like a, out somewhere in public and somebody's just cussing up a storm and your kids are there and you're just, I mean, right? And they're just no reason. And they just don't have any regard for anybody and they're profane. That's what he's saying here. This is what these people are like. They're profane. But look, I am their taunting song. These people are now the ones who sing taunting songs about me. I can't understand this, Lord, he's saying. Yes, I am their byword. They hate me. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They don't hesitate to spit in my face. Can you imagine? That's the one that gets me about the Lord. All of it gets me, but that one, oh, man, when they spit at the Lord or on the Lord. Because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me. In other words, the God, my God, who is supposed to be a defender, he has let my bowstring go, and it's just boom. And I'm sick, and I'm suffering. And they have cast off restraint before me. At my right hand, the rabble arises. They push away my feet, and they raise against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They have no helper. They come as broad breakers. Under the ruinous storm they roll along. Fifteen terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind, and my prosperity is passed like a cloud. Sixteen. And now my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of affliction take a hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night. My gnawing pains take no rest. By great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. You get this picture of what Job was ultimately or, or currently going through, just even more than in the first part of the book. By great force, verse 18, my garment is disfigured. Oh, sorry, I read that. Verse 20, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success, for I know that you'll bring me to death and to the house appointed for living. Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins if they cry out when he destroys it. 25, have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Listen, he's vindicating himself. He's saying, I'm I'm doing good, but when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for light, then came darkness. My heart is in turmoil and can't rest. Days of affliction comfort me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly, cry out for help. I'm a brother of jackals. Man, that's pretty bad and a companion of ostriches. My skin grows black and falls for me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. In other words, as long as we want to be different from what God wants us to be at the time, we're only tormenting ourselves to no purpose. Can we get to the place, folks, where the Lord is our portion We love the Lord for who he is. We're satisfied with him and him alone. And in the middle of difficult circumstances, we don't get tripped up. Because one of the things of suffering that we've been saying during this uh, series, it's not so much the suffering. It is the suffering. It's when you can't find any purpose in suffering that suffering becomes toxic. 
And when you have expectations that you want to be different from what God wants you to be at the time, it's like pouring poison into your soul. And here, what is one of the things that he gets tripped up on? The past. He is telling us, I think, that we shouldn't be unprepared to meet the future. We don't know what the future holds for us. Is God going to be any less or more or good? Is he going to be good or less good next week if we lose a job or we lose a friend or we lose a family member? See, because if somebody has said the past should be a rudder to guide us, not an anchor to hold us back. And here, he's living in the past. Old people like myself tend to do this sometimes, even in the Calvary Chapel movement. See, the Calvary Chapel movement, for you people who don't know, for people who don't know, it's the Jesus people. It's the late 60s and the 70s when the Lord was pouring out his spirit, and we were just there. People were going down to Crystal Cove on the West Coast, and they were sitting on the cliffs, and it was nothing to uh, baptize 1,000, 2,000 people every Sunday. And this was happening all throughout the 60s and all throughout the 70s. And there's many in the movement who still live in that past. When we should learn from the past and move forward, because if we're expecting that God's going to do the same thing over and over the the way they did in the 60s and the 70s, we're living in chapter 29 and chapter 30. We're, we're living in chapter 30. We're going to get disappointed if he doesn't do it the way we think he should do it, or he's not doing to us the things that we think he should do. You get that? How about this as we read the last chapter? Verse or chapter 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. He knows, or, or he's, here's his last attempt to find wisdom. I've made a covenant with my eyes. That's why, by the way, the phone filter is called covenant eyes, that verse right there. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Verse 3, is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Now, here you go. You're going to start in verse 5. If I... That's going to be repeated, I think, 16 times, close to 16. If I've walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. There it is again. If my step is turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, so even if I've lusted, God, judge me. If I've committed adultery or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another. Let her be in the house of another. And let others bow down over her, for that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment, for that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would not, or excuse me, and would root out all my increase. Okay, just hold on, because I got a point and you got to remind me to the segue. If I've despised the cause of my male or female servant, if I haven't been fair, compassionate with my servants, 
when they complained against me or my employees or my fellow workers. What then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? Verse 15 gives a real interesting perspective at work, folks. If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless couldn't eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I raised my hand against the fatherless, when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder, let my arm be torn from the socket. Well, that's pretty radical. For destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence, I can't endure. If I've made gold my hope, if, I, if I've lusted after riches or said to find gold, you're my confidence. If I've rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much, if I observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand. I just said, man, I'm so rich and wonderful and great. Mwah. Praise the, well, praise me. This also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. By the way, that's very convicting. You ever got a bonus at work? And you said, wow, I'm pretty good at this stuff. Or you know, whatever. Somebody's giving you a compliment or, or what. Man, I am really good. Instead of saying, wow, look how the Lord is blessed in this instance. Anyway, if I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, how about that? I've been Christ-like in my attitude. Now, of course, he didn't say that, but he's been like the Sermon on the Mount. I loved my enemies, rejoiced I didn't rejoice at their destruction. I lifted myself up when evil found him. Indeed, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has been satisfied uh, uh, with this, his meat? But no so sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors. I was, I was so hospitable, man. <laughs> if I've covered my transgression as Adam by hiding in my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared uh, the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. And here it comes, here it comes, folks. This, we got all this way for this. See, this whole chapter set in legal language again. This is all about being in a courtroom here. And you and I have been following and tracking that all the great Cries of Job's heart are answered in Jesus Christ. We've been following along with that. That's how you have to read Job. Job has these bursts of faith, and then they recede back. And then a burst of faith, and here comes another one. You say, what do you mean? He goes, oh, that the Almighty would answer me. And here it comes, that my prosecutor had written, it actually is in the King James, I think, adversary, which means prosecutor, that my prosecutor had written a book. What does that mean? Just like we talked about on Sunday, that's due process. What, what Job is saying here is, why don't we have the great judge who gives me due process and lays out his charges against me? He's, he's booked me. 
He's given me a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. Oh, that I could know what his charges against me are and were. That's what Job is saying. I want a fair, impartial, perfect judge. It's the cry of his heart. He's crying out. If I knew that, if you'd just give me the charges, I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, verse 40, then let thistles grow instead of wheat. Now, I want to just talk to you about this. See, some people shirk away from God as judge, but you shouldn't shirk away from God as judge. And here's why. (laughs) Because if God is a perfect judge, we live in a moral universe. And if we live in a moral universe and God is perfectly a judge, check this out, life actually has meaning. It's judged. It counts. But why? Would you want (laughs) to... Oh, man, I'll get in trouble for this. But... Would you want to be in a, like a skating competition in the 1970s and the 1980s in the Olympics? And there you are with the American flag all over your outfit. And you look over there and you're in this tight race. And your main opponents are the Russians. And you look across there and you go, oh, no. All the judges are from Russia. I'm toast. Right? You've worked all these years. You've poured into your training. You know you have this amazing shot, and you're crestfallen because bias. And if you've watched the Olympics, that's happened a lot. Not necessarily with Russians, but you know what I mean. And there's this cry among men and women that maybe we don't even know. You say it. It comes out when I watch the news with you. I've never watched the news with you, but if I did... Because I hear people say, that's not fair. Why don't they get judged? Why does it continue to happen? And God is the perfect judge. And there will come a judge and a judgment time. You know where the answer is? The answer for us is in Hebrews 12. You want to just turn over there real quick? I know, I'm going a little late. But listen, I made up for it on Sunday. We were early on Sunday. Look in verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12. Man, if I could just have the charges against me, laid out against me, I would walk anywhere you'd want me to walk. I could approach him like a prince. Isn't that interesting? But you have come to Mount Zion, verse 22 of Hebrews 12, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What? Did God want in the story of Cain and Abel vengeance? What does God want post Christ dying on the cross and rising again? Or what is God, excuse me, what is God free to release post 
Christ dying and rising again, God's now free to release mercy and grace because the vengeance has been satisfied. So the cry of our heart is that we have a perfect prosecutor, judge, who says you're a sinner and my wrath must be poured out against it. You come not to the mount where the Ten Commandments were given. You come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, full of grace and mercy, where grace is free to be released, so that now I can follow you anywhere, and I'm, I'm royalty with you. Check this out. G. Campbell Morgan says this. It's a great thing for the human soul when it ceased to listen to the opinions of neighbors and the arguments of philosophers and futilities of the clever men of earth and flings itself out into the clear light of the judgments and findings of God. When any soul does that, it finds there Jesus the mediator of a new covenant whose blood makes possible the activity of mercy upon the basis of the strictest justice. Man, you got to read that sentence and think about that all week. A new covenant whose blood makes possible the activity of mercy, but on the basis of the strictest justice. Before that throne, through the mediation of the mediator, justice and mercy meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Wow. Now here's the segue. Why do we keep going over the same thing over and over again? <laughs> let, me, let me read you this verse that you all know. Why, why do we keep doing this? Why do you think the Holy Spirit has had us go through all these chapters from chapter 4, and now we're into chapter 31. We just completed chapter 31. We still have five more chapters of Elihu and Job to go next week. And then we get to the dialogue between heaven and earth, this 38 through 42. Why, why do you think we keep going over and over? Six chapters of Job pouring out his heart with God. Job is struggling. Job, Job is triumphant. Job then... Job then cries out. Job then gets misguided and says, but if I didn't, wasn't suffering now and you put me back the way I was, which is what Satan wanted him to succumb to. Struggling, hurting. By the way, notice he's justifying himself in all of those chapters. One author that I love, Ray Stedman, this is a side note and then we'll get back to it. Ray Stedman says, when you stop justifying yourself, it's when God speaks. And that's interesting because in Job, it's when he stops justifying himself, when he just says, Lord, I'm just going to live according to what you have for me. God enters in and starts speaking to him in the book. You'll see it in a couple weeks. Okay, but look, why so much of the same thing? Why do we have to go through six chapters of just Job pouring out his heart, his triumphs, his failures? I'll read this to you. you. You all know the scripture. It's in the book of Revelation. But I wonder if you've ever thought of it this way. It's in chapter 3, verse 20, as we close up. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anybody ever heard this verse? Okay. 
This verse has to do with eating. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, it's not that I would just come into him. I'll come in and dine with him or her. What, what do you do when you eat dinner with somebody? You fellowship with them. You talk with them. You get to know them. When you start dating somebody, what do you do? You take to dinner because you can talk. You share this intimate time. See, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What else does he say? He says, I'll, I'll reward those, Hebrews 11, I'll reward those people who diligently seek me. I'll reward them. How, how about in Psalm 42? Just, just go there. I, I referred to it earlier, and then we're almost done. And I'm not going to hurt my wife's feelings. I'm not talking about my wife, about something I'm about ready to say. Because she... She's deep, so don't think I am. But there's this scripture, Psalm 42, where this son of Korah, or the sons of Korah, yearn for God in the midst of distress. And there's this, you know, oh my God, verse 6, my soul is cast down within me, kind of like Job. Therefore, I'll remember you from the land of Jordan, from the high. And then it says this, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls, but we don't say the second part of the verse, all your waves and billows, they go over top of me. <laughs> and, and, and when I'm in deep, I need deep. I don't need shallow. I think, don't take this the wrong way, but this is a challenge to me and to our whole church, and to the church at large. I think if we go through six chapters and we say, my goodness, can we get through this? Without remembering that this is poetic and you're supposed to feel it. Like Job feels it. And when God calls you in and you unlock the door and you, you come in and you dine with him, you just don't say, hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Goodbye. No, you, you're face-to-face -face with the Lord now. You, you've been brought in by the blood. Here's your opportunity. The only one that could ever heal or fix or know your disappointment and to rejoice with you. But if our prayers, our speaking with God is just kind of shallow, Lord, I got four baseball games this week, and I got a test, and I need you to bless me. Thank you, Lord. Bye. I think if we just read through this and we say, well, that's the, I think what it shows us is that our whole life with the Lord is a bit shallow. And I'm starting with myself. I'm not picking on my wife. Trust me. She's not shallow. <laughs> when he invites us in, what do we want to do? Get on to the next meeting? Or do we want to share with him? Invite him in to all the things that we are in need of and helpless for. Go back and forth and tell him how we failed. But gosh, it's so fantastic, Lord, because you don't see me in my failure, but you're graceful and merciful. But I have failed and I need your help. 
And I'm not justifying anymore. I just, I just need it. See, that might take more than 20 seconds. And so I think what the Lord is telling us through these middle parts of this, as we watch Job struggle and pour out his heart, is that is what he wants from us too. Not just perfection or anything like that, but just come and keep coming. So, as we wrap it up tonight, so many lessons from Job. It's almost too hard to rope them all in, and I won't tonight, but I just pray that for us, for me, starting with me and us, that we would be people that would develop a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, and not just be knowers and fact-pointer-outers, but that we would really spend time with him. Read big chunks of the Bible. Put your phone away and go for a walk and talk to him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what a, what a piece of scripture, Lord. And yeah, we can get caught up in repetition, the repetition of Job. But what's weird about that is it seems like I'm bringing you the same stuff all the time. We do that. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless this study to our hearts. And as we move on out of here, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior through Jesus Christ as we spend time with you, Lord. And then, Lord, you'd give us the resource and the strength to go out and share your love and your light with a really dark and hurting world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.